Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Israeli drone has killed Hamas deputy leader in Beirut. How does he amplify spillover concerns in the region? Trump appeals disqualification from the 2024 primary ballot in Maine amid intense political struggles in the election year. How will the nation be shaped? And China's BYD has outpaced Tesla in global quarterly EV sales. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Hamas deputy leader Salah Halarure has been killed in an attack in the southern suburb of the Lebanese capital Beirut. Hamas chief Ismail Haniye called the killing a terrorist act and a violation of Lebanon's sovereignty and expansion of Israel's hostility against the Palestinians. Lebanese militant group Hezbollah has vowed to retaliate against any Israeli targeting of Palestinian officials in Lebanon. The Israeli military has declined to comment. Associated Press correspondent Isabella Dabry reports The deputy leader of Hamas has been killed in what appeared to be an attack in the southern suburbs of Beirut, the Lebanese capital. Suspicion immediately fell on Israel, which has targeted Salah al-Ruri in the past many times and also has threatened to kill Hamas leaders wherever they may be. That's actually a quote from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in November as he spoke on this issue. As we do know, many Hamas leaders are in the Gaza Strip, but also many political leaders are outside of the Gaza Strip, living in Lebanon, Turkey, Qatar, because that is important they say, for liaising with foreign officials. We do know that Saleh Halaruri was in Lebanon. He was deputy leader to second-in-command to Ismail Haniya, the political leader of Hamas, but also was in charge of military operations in the occupied West Bank. And the fact that Israel has targeted him on Lebanese soil has produced shock and fear in Lebanon. It also has produced fears of retaliation by Hezbollah and also perhaps another blow for Hamas as it struggles to defend itself against Israel's campaign in Gaza. So we've been seeing that the t- tensions are reverberating. The Israeli military has not commented on the strike. It has only said that it is ready for all scenarios, alluding to fears of a retaliation. That was Isabel Debray with the Associated Press. So for more analysis of the development, joining us on the line is Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rong. Thank you for having me. First of all, how do you assess the timing and the purpose of the assassination of Hamas deputy leader Salah Halarure? What led to this specific escalation in the Israel-Hamas conflicts expanding beyond the Gaza Strip? Well, I think the uh, killing or the assassination of the uh, deputy leader of Hamas, Salah Halarure, is the purpose is very clear, very much, I think, fit to the announcement or the determination of the Israeli when the October 7th attack happened, that they will target, they will kill or eliminate Hamas leaders, whether in or outside Hamas. So talking, this is the very purpose. And the timing, I would only argue that is rather related to intelligence. They may have the intelligence and they may determine that this is, uh, I mean, this, this is uh, the right way, and they can do that. And uh, 
furthermore, I think Israeli is very much for the case as targeted focuses on eliminating or killing Hamas and other militant leaders. And they are even very proud of that. So this is, I think, a well-calculated, well-planned and well-executed assassination and for the purpose of the so-called fighting the Hamas. Many reports suggested that the attack signaled the conflict between Hamas and Israel could be expanding to engulf more of the region. Do you share the same stance? Um, how will this further affect regional dynamics? Yeah, that's exactly, I think, uh, the concerns or the worries that have been arising uh, from this incident. I think it's, it's uh, clearly uh, First and foremost, I think the, not only the regional leaders, but also the Hezbollah and, uh, of course, uh, Hamas has made very clear they would respond. They would, uh, 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 I mean, uh, do whatever they, they believe that's appropriate. And the most important thing, of course, it's also related to the concerns that widely shared by this conflict, which has going on for three months, mm-hmm. that make sure or make every effort have to be made to ensure that this conflict would be certainly end or stop. But the equally important thing is it would not sort of uh, uh, enlarge or engulf the region as a whole. Over the past three months and almost three months, we have seen that the conflict has mainly focused in the Gaza. While in the meantime, uh, we all know very well that between the, uh, the around the border border areas between the Lebanon and the, I mean I mean Israel there were conflict almost a daily conflict but the one thing has to be pointed out is that it seems that the two sides Hezbollah and Israeli forces they have some kind of a green so-called red line to make sure that uh, the conflict would not sort of become kind of full-blown conflict. But with this incident, with this killing, I think uh, fair to say that how that would lead to whether it will lead to expansion of conflict. Or even though I think uh, the conflicting parties, the Hezbollah and the Israeli forces, do hold their so-called red line, and whether I mean a miscalculation or mistake would cause expansion of a conflict. So this is something. I think uh, has to be watched. And if that happens, then it would be make the situation even worse and bring in more sort of uh, parties into the conflict, which I think uh, nobody wants to see. Then from Lebanon's perspective, this was the first Israeli attack on, on the Lebanese capital since 2006, which could mark a major escalation in the conflict between Israel and Lebanon, as you suggested. And the Lebanese prime minister condemned the attack as a new Israeli crime. How might this condemnation and the attack shape Lebanon's stance in the broader conflict? Lebanon is, unfortunately, I think, uh, has been very much affected in a way by this conflict. And the uh, government of Lebanon has very much, I think, ever since the outbreak of this conflict condemned and take every uh, step to ensure it would not be involved in a direct conflict with the Israeli forces. 
Unfortunately, because there are many uh, militant uh, movements or militant groups operating in Lebanon, and also I think in particular Hezbollah. So it would be very difficult for Lebanon government to come up with any effective way to prevent that scenario from happening. Furthermore, I think the public in Lebanon, the average people in the streets, very much have sympathy of the suffering, and particularly the killing of the Palestinians. So it is very much uh, in a way that puts Lebanon even more difficult. Uh, on the one hand, as a, as a I mean, Arab country, Arab state, though it very much sympathize and support the uh, Palestinians. On the other hand, I think they would do every possible way to ensure it would not get in direct um, uh, involved in the conflict. Dr. Ron, Hamas has announced a freeze on ceasefire negotiations with Israel after the attack. Uh, could you please elaborate more on what impact the attack have on reaching a ceasefire negotiations and on the overall situation in Gaza and beyond? Well, it's yeah, the uh, I think we had in late November a kind of a, a ceasefire or truce that helped uh, the exchange or and the release of detainees or hostages of the two sides, which has been has been welcomed. And sh- and that process, uh, I think, international community, and regional countries all believe that it should be continued. And there are reports that with the uh, the uh, sort of support, I mean, good office provided by the Qataris and Egypt, and there are sort of uh, contests and negotiations that have been going on. And it was reported that the Hamas also came up some ideas. I mean, how to ensure that uh, that would uh, would take place. And with that uh, killing, with that incident, I mean. Uh, Development certainly, I think the process has very much uh, has been sort of set back, and the Hamas has announced that they they have stopped the process. And the question, of course, as we are now uh, looking at or focusing on the possible uh, fallout, the consequences or possible responses of the uh, the Hamas and Hezbollah, and the uh, the 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 first. Uh, the most important thing is, of course, the much-needed sort of talks were set back, were, uh, were, were stopped, and uh, would, uh, would lead to more sufferings and more killings and uh, more uh, uh, escalation and tensions of, uh, of, the, of the conflict. This is something really bad. This is very much, I think, worrying and uh, worrying development. Mm-hmm. Then how do you think Israel will adjust or continue to carry out its strategy in the Gaza Strip in response to this new development? Because earlier Israel has announced plans to pull back some troops from the Gaza Strip, suggesting a potential shift in the ongoing conflict amid global concern for the well-being of Gaza civilians, right? Well, I don't see Israel will adjust. Rather, I, of course, even though I think in the wake of this the news, a uh, news report of this uh, killing, of this assassination. I think the Israeli government made it clear, tried to make um, making a point that this is not uh, against uh, the uh, Lebanon. 
it's not nor to some extent I think the Hezbollah is rather as I said that it's against the leadership of of Hamas which is of course the uh, utmost uh, one of the utmost purposes of its uh, of its military operations but having said that I think Israeli would definitely as it has been announced that uh, it uh, have to be prepared in a, in a, in in a way the Israeli forces in a, in a high state of readiness and to to uh, to deal with to manage the any scenarios or any sort of responses coming from from that and the question of course as i said is that if there might be a, a new round of i mean con- conflict i mean responses and and counter responses which again as we have discussed that will set back the process this is very much unfortunate and also i think it way i mean uh, complicate or or aggregate the the debate or the division in israel on how to manage or pursue uh, its uh, its operations uh, in hamas as now there are reports that in israel there are seems a different force political forces different views different sort of thinkings on how to uh, manage uh, uh, they pursue this, this conflict uh, in in particular the so-called post-conflict uh, 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 Gaza uh, in terms of the settlement or the uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the ar- arrangement or settlement of the Palestinian. So mm-hmm. that of course another another complicated but the equally important issue if we we really want to have the ceasefire stop the succession of conflict as we look ahead. I mean, the, the, the future plan uh, in Gaza. Okay, thanks, Dr. Rong, for your insightful opinions. That's Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. China has marched to the forefront of the global hydrogen race as it gears up for a future powered by clean and sustainable energy. The country boasts the world's largest network of 400 operational hydrogen refueling stations. Projections from the China Hydrogen Alliance show that by 2025, the nation's hydrogen energy industry output will more than triple the amount recorded in 2020 to approximately 14 billion U.S. dollars. Hydrogen energy will account for more than 10 percent of China's terminal energy system in 2025, up from less than 3 percent in 2019. And the share of green hydrogen will jump from 1 percent in 2019 to 10 percent in 2030. For more on this, I earlier talked with Professor Lin Boqiang, director of China's Center for Energy Economic Research at Xiamen University. Professor, given China's leadership in the number of hydrogen refueling stations globally, can you elaborate on the strategic importance of having such an extensive network? Right now, I think it's uh, more important uh, from technology and commercialization perspective, uh, even though that China has the largest number of uh, hydrogen stations, but it doesn't mean much. The reason for that is that the application is still very small. Globally, we, are the, we have more compared to others, but they are all very small anyway. I think it's a strategically, it's very important. Uh, moving forward, I think we are going to have more and more hydrogen. And eventually, we are going to 
we are going to have more and more hydrogen applications. So in the sense that in the future, yes, that's very important. No question about it. So right now, the, it's a, a lot of hydrogen station is more for the demonstration, more for the commercialization application, more for the, for example, if we have uh, made the hydrogen from some sources uh, like green or non-green, it really needs a station to, uh, to be able to apply to uh, the end consumers. So I think that uh, the progress is good, but I don't want to exaggerate the importance of the hydrogen at this point. In the future, yes, it's very important. Could you please elaborate more on the application of this network? What the application, I think that uh, is uh, right now, or for example, if you talk about hydrogen station, is basically for bus. We don't really see the passenger cars using the hydrogen at this point. Uh, now, not to mention China, even Japan, they have been ongoing for more than 20 years. It's still not there. So the China right now is a government pushing uh, for the application of hydrogen, and this is really uh, preparing for the future. So right now, the, the hydrogen is more or less, hydrogen station is more or less for the public bus because the government can, uh, can support that. Commercialization at this moment is still quite difficult because you uh, don't have sources where, where hydrogen will come from. Second, it's still, it's still very expensive compared to electric, electric car, electric vehicles. So I want to emphasize it. It's important, okay? It's strategically important. Mm-hmm. You have to do it now because you don't, have to, you don't do it. Then you don't have it in the future. And you don't have competitiveness compared to other countries. But if you talk about numbers or talk about quantities, it's still very small. We know China is the largest producer and also consumer of hydrogen globally, but according to the World Economic Forum's latest white paper, only less than 0.1% of the hydrogen China produces comes from renewable sources. How can China increase the share of green hydrogen in its overall production, and what challenges need to be addressed to achieve this? That's exactly the point. I joined the the discussion in the hydrogen discussions, many people talk about it. And there's a lot of uh, strategic planning for the from different provinces, from different companies. However, that, that still we still do not know where the hydrogen came from. Okay. And that's why there is so small uh, from wind and solar. Theoretically, if we talk about hydrogen, it really has to come from green energy. Otherwise, you're talking about more emission rather than less. Because the hydrogen itself is an industrial process, manufacturing process, it consumes energies. So if, if energy is not coming from green, let's say coming from fossil fuel, then you really adding more CO2 emissions, not reducing it. Because during the process of, many, of manufacturing hydrogen, you, you, you can see more energy. So the, the, the really the point of the Hydrogen coming to the picture is that you have enough wind and solar. Because uh, let me step aside a bit. The, you, you can really use the nuclear or, or hydropower. That's also green. But you don't want to do that because uh, if we something can directly generate electricity, you don't want to go through the hydrogen process. One is expensive. Second is consume energy because it's a manufacturing process. So you really don't want to do that. You don't want to use hydropower. You don't want to use uh, nuclear power. And you don't even want to use the, the wind and solar nearby because it's still cheaper to generate electricity rather than to make the hydrogen. So that is why the, 
Kulin, uh, hydrogen is all come from what we call blue or gray, whatever. But color is, uh, is uh, certainly not green, okay? And that's why green is so small. If the green is so small, you don't want to talk about hydro impact hydrogen in the low carbon. You don't want to talk about that because it doesn't make sense. It means more CO2 rather than less CO2, okay? So, but technology itself, station, commercialization is all important. We are preparing for the future, okay? My imagination is that when hydrogen is really need to be there, it's more a transmission process. For example, suppose we have a lot of large wind and solar power in the Western regions, in Gobi deserts, mm. and you really, there's no consumer to consume those electricities. Then you need a hydrogen to make it be able to store it, to transmit and eventually to be applied to the end, to the end consumers. Hydrogen by itself is very flexible. It's like natural gas. It can use up for almost everything. So there's really no need except the electric vehicles. There's really not much need to really study the end because it's pretty similar to natural gas. But the, more, the difficult part is that it's expensive. Storage, transmission, and also eventual application like hydrogen station, they're all very expensive because it's uh, at this moment, the safety, we don't know how, how safe it is. Okay, and also that uh, to transmit the, the, as a storage transmission and, and application, the whole process, we don't know how expensive it would be. So right now, then, my imagination, if the wind and solar in the Western region, in the Gobi Desert, will be very, very cheap, then there's a sense that to connect the hydrogen with the wind and solar, eventually going to end consumer applications. What I try to emphasize, uh, any consumer application, in fact, is not that difficult, except the hydrogen vehicle that requires technology. For other industrial processes, I would imagine it's not that difficult. The difficult part, of course, at this moment is where the hydrogen came from. One, second, how expensive the storage, the transmission, and eventually are going to consumers. How expensive the process will be. Because by the end, that is, you really need the economic competitiveness to be going to the market to be commercialized. Then, Professor, China has set the target of reaching peak carbon emissions by 2030 and aiming for carbon neutrality by 2060. Then, to realize the green energy transformation in China, what's the envisioned energy structure, in your opinion? What proportion could be attributed to hydrogen produced? from renewable sources? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the hydrogen really need to connect with renewables. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Now the renewables, me and many experts agree that by the end of 26, by 2060, we probably need wind and solar, basically about 65 to 70% from the current perspective, okay? Because of the other technology, we don't know. It's still more than 30 years, more than 35 years. So that we don't know, but from current technology perspective, it's basically wind and solar. Had to be in the energy mix, had to be 65 to 70 percent. That is enormous because right now it's a little bit more than five percent. So from five to go to 65 to 70, the requirement is so substantial that it really need a large base. All the China inland, I do not believe enough base for that. So we really have to go to a Gobi Desert, go to. Western regions, where enormous space. But the trouble is that it's so far away from the market. And so that's where the hydrogen came in. And that's why hydrogen is very important. Okay, without hydrogen, how do you move, use the so-called 
super high voltage or whatever, how to move a larger quantity of wind and solar from Western region all the way to the East. Theoretically, that's not, it's hard to imagine. And so that's why we require the hydrogen process that we make it into the hydrogen and storage transmitted and eventually go to end consumers. So from this perspective, I think that the larger proportion of the wind and solar eventually will have to go to hydrogen. And that's why hydrogen is extremely important for China. Many economies are increasingly emphasizing hydrogen as a strategic choice for their energy transformation. How do China's hydrogen initiatives compare with those of other major economies globally? And what potential synergies or differences exist that could shape the future of the global hydrogen market? Well, I think from a technology perspective, it's really not much advanced or disadvantage in terms of tech, from technology perspective, it's really not much different from one country to the other because it was started not long ago. Japan is uh, working on the hydrogen vehicle for a long time, but that's it. In terms of the manufacturing process, everything, it's really not much different compared to one country to the other. But from the planning perspective, China's planning is far more larger compared to all other countries. There's no question about it. And it's because of China's low carbon transition, because of China's emphasis on the global renewable energy leadership. So all in all, I think that China is pretty much in the forefront of the hydrogen process or technology advance or commercialization. The problem at this moment that you do not exaggerate the importance of hydrogen at this point, no matter in which country, it really doesn't matter. Because for everyone, this is a process. You have to come from green renewables. Mm. So it's really not much different. So no matter what kind of planning you have, the hydrogen at this moment is very small. And looking forward, it will grow big when the renewable become big. And renewable right now, are China still the largest one compared to all other countries. That was Professor Lin Bocheng, Director of China Center for Energy Economics Research at Xiamen University. Coming up, Trump appeals disqualification from 2024 primary ballot in Maine. This is Road Today. We'll be back. You've been listening to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Donald Trump has appealed Ming's decision to disqualify him from the state's Republican presidential primary ballot. Secretary of State Sheena Bellows concluded that Trump is ineligible for holding office at the White House because of his role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol in early 2021. Lawyers for the former president argued that the decision by top elected officials in men was based on bias and a lack of due process. The Republican front-runner was also banned in Colorado. Voting for this year's presidential election begins in Iowa this month. Owen Faircloud takes a look at Trump's chaotic campaign. Can Donald Trump still run as a candidate in Colorado even after its historic decision to disqualify him from the ballot? The state Supreme Court ruled that the former president isn't constitutionally eligible to run due to his role in the January the 6th insurrection. Trump engaged in that insurrection. But the ruling isn't as straightforward as that, not least for Colorado's top election official. This is a case that has taken lots of, of twists and turns. We have expected an appeal from the former president. Colorado's Republican Party has appealed that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, while Trump is also expected to file his own appeal. 
So Colorado's ruling has been effectively postponed until this Thursday, the day before the deadline to be on the ballot for Colorado's March 5th primary, when voters choose their Republican presidential candidate. I certify the names onto the ballot uh, for the presidential primary this Friday. Uh, and so we, we do hope that the court understands that presidential primaries are rapidly uh, approaching and gives us a definitive answer whether or not the former president is disqualified from the ballot. So if the Supreme Court declines to take Trump's case or rules in his favor before the first ballots for overseas voters are printed, his name will still be on them. But if the Supreme Court rules after that, those dispatched later for domestic mail or in-person voting might not include Trump, leaving Colorado with two different ballots. That complex scenario is shaping a potentially chaotic presidential election. Trump has also been disqualified in Maine, while there are similar cases pending in around 10 states, with another six having dismissed attempts to stop Trump running. That was Irvin Fairclough on Donald Trump's presidential campaign. So for more on this, let's have Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, how do you view Trump's appeal? Was the likelihood of his success in overturning Maine's decision? Well, conventional wisdom holds the Supreme Court is likely to support Trump because it's a conservative court, and he appointed three of the justices. Uh, the basic uh, the basic question, however, is whether conservative justices who normally favor states' rights in America's federal system might choose to override state-based decisions to exclude him from the ballot. So this is the pickle the conservative justices will have to resolve. If they refuse to hear the case or rule against him, then we might expect other states, as your lead noted, to also move to exclude him. Uh, for example, uh, even some of the states that have so far ruled out excluded him, including Michigan. But let's make it clear, uh, states routinely disqualify candidates for many reasons that have long enjoyed uh, relatively uncontested powers to do so. If the Supreme Court overrules uh, the states on Trump, that it might create other risks for many other candidates also being allowed to stand for the election, uh, further muddying races in what is effectively, but not constitutionally, a two-party system. Then how does the timing of these legal challenges potentially influence the broader Republican nominating process with state-by-state contests beginning on January 15th? Well, clearly these uh, uh, challenges are being timed and sequenced to cause as much harm as possible to the Trump campaign and the Republican Party overall. I don't think they help Trump or the Republicans, even though some uh, believe that he is being unfairly victimized. And, of course, he's playing the role of victim to keep his supporters energized. Uh, in fact, uh, the Republican Party has not figured out yet how to deal with Trump. Uh, on the one hand, uh, other candidates and some elected uh, Republicans would like to move past the Trump era. They know Biden is very vulnerable, but so is Trump. Uh, plus, Trump simply wasn't a good president. Uh, one is hard-pressed to point to sustainable achievements directly associated with his uh, time in office, other than negative ones, like poisoning China-U.S. relations. But it's rather easy to remark on the many failures, including climate change, police brutality, minority issues, the pandemic, immigration affairs, <laughs> unrestrained deficit funding, and so on. On the other hand, he is the most popular Republican candidate and can damage Republicans who oppose him, especially key members of the House and Senate. Uh, and even uh, his Republican challengers, who would certainly like to have him excluded, are forced to criticize such decisions or risk showing common cause 
with uh, democratic tactics. Then given all of this, how do you perceive the overall electoral prospects of Donald Trump? Because despite legal challenges, opinion polls indicate a significant lead for Trump in the Republican nominating contest. How might these legal battles affect public perception of Trump's candidacy? Well, so even if these exclusions uh, are allowed to stand, would they actually change the outcome of the election uh, either in, at the primary stage or, or later. Uh, on the one hand, the states that are likely to exclude him are already blue states, which is to say he wouldn't be expected to win them in the general election anyway. Uh, on the other hand, while some believe Trump can beat uh, Biden head-to-head, others, and, and I would include myself in this others group, believe that Trump is too compromised and will be further wounded with all the indictments and court cases he faces this year. Now, if efforts like this manage to drive Trump out of the race, then we might see a new Republican that can beat Biden emerge as long as Trump stays out of the way, and all the more so if Trump endorses the candidate with the possible quid pro quo of getting pardons uh, if the Republican has is, is been elected. Of course, Trump could choose to run as an independent and even as a write-in candidate, but I think this is unlikely to produce a win, and he would uh, certainly gain more political capital and historical legacy by portraying himself as a kingmaker. Uh, but in short, I think Trump being forced out and Biden possibly facing a stronger, uh, stronger challenger uh, might be a good thing uh, for U.S. voters, but it's certainly not an outcome uh, Biden would like, even if he uh, enjoys seeing Trump subjected to these uh, challenges and, and, and various other problems. Now, my guess is Biden would like to see Trump severely wounded, but still in the race. Professor Mahoney, we know that 2024 is an election year in the United States. In addition to the internal challenges faced by Trump within his own party, uh, the polarization and competition between the two major parties have reached unprecedented levels. So how do you perceive the impact of these political struggles on domestic issues in the United States, such as economic inequality, inflation, immigration, drug issues, for example? Well, for the past several years, what we've seen is the U.S. largely being governed by executive order um, because uh, Congress has been ineffectual in passing new legislation. In fact, Congress in 2023 was the least productive in decades, with some scholars arguing the least productive since the U.S. Civil War. And there are uh, a number uh, of major challenges that they were unable to resolve in 2023 and that they pushed to 2024, which is, is a nightmare scenario because they rarely get anything done in such a sensitive election year. Um, so we should assume that there will be no major legislation passed uh, before the election, uh, certainly none dealing with very controversial issues like gun control or income inequality, uh, which are highly polarized. Now, there are some possible exceptions, including funding for Israel or possibly Ukraine, but the latter is less likely. Uh, we might see Congress and the White House working together on anti-China legislation. This seems to be the one area where they, they tend to agree, um, as well as both parties. There are reports we might see uh, legislation on immigration uh, in large measure because Biden and the Democrats are making significant concessions, like making it harder for asylum seekers. Uh, nevertheless, it might not be enough to placate Republican hardliners in the House who want to seal the border with Mexico and this is the same group that torpedoed Kevin McCarthy's speakership and could do the same to Mike Johnson. Now, on uh, January 19th and February 2nd, Congress faces uh, deadlines to provide spending bills uh, uh, to prevent a government shutdown um, with disagreement between the House and Senate Republicans on how to proceed. 
Uh, so this is not just a, 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 part, a problem uh, between parties, but within parties. Uh, Congress is also facing deadlines to deal with controversial legislation related to surveillance powers, as well as bills for the Federal Aviation Administration and agricultural subsidies that failed to pass in 2023. And if they can't work out deals here and within the next uh, a month or so, then all bets are off. And, of course, you know, uh, House Republicans, what they really want to do is advance uh, some sort of impeachment investigation against Biden. And, of course, if this continues to, to proceed, then it will distract them from important business and, and further polarizing gridlock government. Now, Professor, another challenge facing the United States is a report from the Department of the Treasury revealing that the total national debt of the federal government has surpassed $34 trillion US dollar for the first time. What does this new record mean? How might this affect U.S. economic growth in the coming year? Well, the U.S. is, let's be clear here, the U.S. is able to deficit spend so much because it can control the value of the U.S. dollar. Uh, and other countries, whether they like it or not, uh, tacitly go along with this uh, for the moment because many economies depend on selling goods to the U.S., uh, even though many of these are effectively purchased in one form or another by debt, and further because many depend on the dollar for global trade. Uh, internationally, uh, we have entered uh, slowly a, a new era of de-dollarization, but this is still by no means certain to spell the end of the dollar. Uh, but it's possible these efforts could accelerate and bring about an end to this pillar of the U.S. economy, and, and we, would, we would possibly see uh, some radical changes. Now, this would be uh, an external risk. Um, another possibility is that the U.S., through continued poor governance and the loss of faith of, of American voters, might start embracing policies that fundamentally challenge uh, deficit spending. Now, this hasn't happened, but there is this type of uh, sentiment in the U.S., uh, there's this broad perception that this kind of economy is both unsustainable and immoral. Uh, and this is, uh, we, we might describe this as an internal risk, which could be further reinforced by uh, downgrading from credit agencies, as we've already seen mm. happen in some cases. Now, ultimately, it would be wise for the U.S. and the rest of the international community to find a constructive solution to these problems. And while there are nascent efforts underway, uh, and, and while uh, even Janet Yellen has noted that de-dollarization is, is coming sooner or later. Uh, we're still a long way from uh, seeing significant fruits from such labors. And uh, I think uh, for the moment, uh, the U.S. is caught in, in a debt trap of its own making. And, uh, and we won't see any resolution above all because of the political polarization that mm -hmm. is only getting worse in Washington. Thanks, Professor, for your time. That's Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. China's BYD, the world's biggest seller of battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids, sold about 3 million vehicles in 2023, an increase of 62% year-on-year. The Shenzhen-based automaker said it sold about 1.6 million battery EVs and 1.4 million plug-in hybrid EVs. While BYD is now making inroads into international markets, the company is strongest on home market. It has built a 35% market share across the new energy vehicle segment in China. So for more on this and China's EV industry, Zhao Yang spoke with Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank, China. So then first, the Chinese EV maker BYD has a more than 60% jump in 2023's vehicle sales. So what has made it achieve this? And there are a number of factors contributing to BYD's success and its high growth. 
Um, I think the number one contributor is the variety of its products. Now, when we compare BYD with Tesla, Tesla so far has six models that can be offered to the market, including its new truck. But for BYD, it already has more than 200 models in sales, and there will be more series coming up. And for its technology, many people have said that it's still behind Tesla. But when it comes to software uh, and uh, the driving assistance system, it has become pretty close to the top tier of the EV maker. And when it comes to the global markets, BYD has become a brand rather than just a manufacturing. Mm. So it has not only extended its footprint in emerging markets like Brazil or Saudi Arabia, it has also entered the markets like Germany and Japan. Mm-hmm. And it has a built-in 35% market share across the NEV segment in China. It is now going to make cars in Europe. So why do they choose Hungary to build an EV manufacturing plant? And how will it benefit Hungarian's EV industry and the local economy? Hungary has a pretty good geolocation in Europe. Uh, it has access to the whole European market. That is a big plus. And it has a long history of advanced manufacturing and supply chain with a cost-efficient connectivity. And this is quite important because for a EV maker, of course, it has to be able to build a factory of its own. But it can't just import everything, uh, including the auto parts or labor from China. So when we look at the Hungarian market, there were already other brands based there, including European car makers like Audi and Mercedes. So the ecosystem has been established before BYD entered, and it has become a very strong point for uh, this new EV factories establishment. And there is a series of uh, government subsidies targeting the EV industry, and um, last but not least important, the bilateral relationship between China and Hungary has been quite friendly. And it is not a deal breaker when it comes to the EV market. But for the long term strategic planning, it is quite important for a Chinese car maker. Mm-hmm. And also Chinese smartphone maker Xiaomi has recently unveiled its long-awaited electric cars, the SU7. So then how do you look at this uh, smartphone makers now going into the smart car manufacturing sector? And how difficult is it? Why do they still want to do so? Um, the smart car manufacturing industry has already been very crowded since three years ago. And now the competition is getting more fierce by day. Um, for Xiaomi to get into this market, of course, there are some advantages. Uh, it has a pretty uh, well-aware market um, brand in China and the overseas market. But when it comes to the manufacturing industry, Xiaomi's strength is to make phones, not really to make car. It has to establish a new relationship with auto suppliers rather than with phone suppliers. So this process can be quite long. And when we look at the EV industry, there are already uh, more than 500 EV makers registered in the list. And by uh, the end of last year, there were about 50 of them that can deliver EVs to the market without a problem. 
So Xiaomi, if it wants to become a significant player, it has to be able to build up its manufacturing capacity really quickly mm. while strengthening its software services targeting the cars. Mm. So what do you think are the challenges for Leijun, the Xiaomi's, you know, had? Well, to start with, it has to uh, be able to secure some long-term contracts with major auto parts suppliers. And for its uh, R&D team, it is quite strong when it comes to the industrial design for smartphones or household appliances. But when it comes to the auto driving system or uh, the smart driving assistant uh, system that's used in a car, it is getting to the top, but still has a pretty long distance. Mm. And Leijing has to invest quite heavily in R&D for sure, while maintaining a good relationship with automakers. Uh, and that's not an easy task to do. Mm. And compared with the traditional car makers like BBA, what advantage do they have, do you think? Um, those smartphone makers, they already have the brands, and that's a big plus. And they have the supply chain. They're very familiar with the upstream and downstream supply chain. And they are also very good at the new type of financing that's targeting the internet slash manufacturing industry. Um, because we have to notice that this new EV supply chain is very different from just the tra traditional car um, production. It has a whole new financing system that relies on the capital market rather than the banking system. And for those smartphone makers, they had tested in the market for a long time, so they're very good at it. And they already got the engineers, and a lot of the skills are transferable. Um, for Chinese major smartphone makers, they have uh, thousands and thousands of offline retail stores, and they also have established factories within China and also in other Southeast Asian countries. So I think um, to establish this new ecosystem, uh, incorporating the software and application scenes as well as the manufacturing scenes, uh, actually the smartphone makers has more advantage in the long term. And you mentioned the ecosystem. So how do you view China's tech giant Huawei's involvement in the smart car software and components? How advanced is Huawei's technology in this area? Huawei's traditional strength is in designing and manufacturing of hardware rather than softwares. Um, but now in its uh, long-term strategic plan, it has prioritized the smartphone um, assistance system. Uh, it is uh, quite a bold move, I have to say, because in that market, the competition has already intensified. Uh, Huawei is not only facing domestic competition, a lot of the European car makers and software companies have invested heavily in this area. So the long-term strategy uh, has to be uh, one way or another connected to uh, the EV industry um, because it's a key point for the industrial transition. But for Huawei to invest so heavily early on at this stage, uh, it has to direct resources from its other business. It is competitive, I have to say, in a way, because it has the engineers, it has uh, the ability to produce. Uh, it is still a, a long-term plan rather than a short-term uh, mm. way to make profit. 
That was Wang Jian, chief economist of Hansen Bank China. A total of 135 million domestic passenger trips were made during the three-day New Year's holiday, up 155 percent year-on-year. Social media was buzzing with photos of snowy adventures transforming the country's chilliest areas into hot sought-after getaways. Northern cities like Harbin, Changchun, and Yanji emerged as popular choices. Choices, attracting masses eager to immerse themselves in the enchanting winter landscape. So, for more on China's booming winter tourism industry, my colleague Zhao Ying is joining us in the studio. Great to have you, Zhao Ying. Thanks for having me. Compared to previous years, when a large number of tourists flocked to the southern part of China, you know, for example, Hainan, to enjoy、uh, the sea breeze and sunshine, it seems that this winter people are more inclined towards ice and snow road, as we saw an incredible surge in winter tourism across China during the New Year holiday. What are the key factors driving this significant increase? Well, I think the surge in winter tourism can be attributed to several factors. Firstly, I think people's enthusiasm for winter activities played a significant role. The festival spirit during the holiday season, coupled with the novelty of snow and ice experiences, especially for those from the southern part of China where snow is rarely seen in winter, motivated people to explore colder destinations. People are embracing the cold weather to ski, shop, and make lasting memories during the three-day New Year holiday. And secondly, I think the opening of various ice and snow-themed parks, like the Harbin Ice and Snow World, has turned cities like Harbin in North China's Heilongjiang Province into popular tourist destinations. Data from China's travel website Ma Fengwo shows that Harbin's popularity surged by 300% in searches within just two weeks of opening the Ice and Snow World. Um, this not only establishes these cities as internet celebrity cities, but also highlights the growing trend of ice and snow tourism. And moreover,、um, the implementation of some pro-consumption measures, such as vouchers and subsidies by local governments, has further fueled the enthusiasm for winter travel. Harbin, for example, introduced various incentives such as cultural and tourism consumption subsidies, and Jilin Province launched a substantial consumption stimulus for the snow season, offering three、uh, 30 million yuan or 4.2 4.2 million U.S. dollars in ice and Snow consumption vouchers and an additional 10 million yuan in transportation subsidies, and also Liaoning Province plans to distribute 150 million yuan in consumption vouchers to attract travelers. So I believe these measures go beyond merely boosting、uh, ticket bookings. They are comprehensive strategies aimed at promoting local businesses and encouraging tourism-related spending. Speaking of encouraging local businesses and economies, how has the surge in winter tourism affected local economy and business in cities like Harbin, Changchun, and Yanji? Well, the impact has been substantial.、Uh, the influx of tourists brought about a boost in local economies, especially in the、uh, in the hospitality, transportation, and entertainment sectors. 
take Harbin, for example, with the opening of various ice and snow-themed parks, the city has become the hottest spot for tourists this winter. And data from Harbin Taiping International Airport shows a record annual th- throughput of 20 million passenger trips, setting a new record for Northeast China. And Harbin's popularity during the New Year holiday resulted in a 331 percent year-on-year increase in air and train tickets bookings. And hotel bookings also skyrocketed, with a 2,570 percent yearly increase online travel agency Chunar, and、uh, those for bed and breakfast stays on homestay platform Tujia also soared a thousand seven hundred percent. And local businesses, including hotels, souvenir shops, and gift stores, have witnessed an unprecedented surge in demand. So I believe these、um, statistics underscore the direct positive impact of winter tourism on local economies. I think that reminds me the selection of the 2023 buzzwords in China, like Yanhuoqi Hustle and Bazao in Zibo, the barbecue city, and the Chunqiao football game, the Village Super League. Numerous villages and cities are searching for distinctive features to join tourists. Then, how do you foresee the long-term effect on the winter tourism industry, considering the success we've witnessed during the holiday season? Well, I think the success of the winter tourism boom during this holiday season sets a promising foundation for the industry's long-term growth. For instance, Harbin has positioned itself not only as a winter tourism destination, but also as a hub for ice and snow-related activities. And with the city's strategic development development plan aiming for a total output value of 75 billion yuan by 2025 and over 150 billion yuan by 2030, we can anticipate sustained interest and investment in the ice and snow economy. And furthermore, Harbin's successful bid. To host the ninth Asian Winter Games in 2025 reflects the city's commitment to establishing itself as a key player in the global winter sports and tourism arena.、Um, this government support, combined with ongoing efforts from enterprises to offer high-quality goods and services,、um, I believe will contribute to the industry's long-term success. Okay, thanks, Zhao Ying, for the discussion. With that, we conclude today's edition of World Today with Mika Anna. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. Bye.